This week on Backroom Politics, breaking news overnight, U.S. and Arab coalition members begin airstrikes on ISIS in Syria and Iraq. These Arab countries include Saudi Arabia, Jordan, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and possibly Qatar. For the Arab joined airstrike on another Arab country, does this pose a danger, and what is the greater effect in the Arab world? How will this play a role in the U.N. General Assembly opening this week? And lastly... The IRS infamous Lois Lerner finally breaks her silence. That and tell me a story this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it's time for the most popular radio show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing the second congressional district of Washington State. He is the Honorable Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Hello. I, that pause after former startled me a bit. <laughs> He's still here. Well, I'm sorry. And to my 11 o'clock, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Well, I'm glad to be former of all of those, and hello, everybody, and I'm glad to be here. And to my 12 o'clock, he is the former executive director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland. He is former 20th Century Fox lobbyist, Carl Tubin. Hello, Justin, and I wish Al, Al Swift was still in the Congress. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And to my 1 o'clock, she is the former general counsel for Homeland Security under Benny Thompson's committee, former general counsel to the Maritime Administration, she is the Honorable Denise Crepolo. Denise. Hello, Justin. And to my two o'clock across the table, he is the former uh, Undersecretary of Commerce who last served under last count four presidents. He is the longtime Senate staffer and a current very distinguished, handsome, and successful fellow at the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And to my right, he is longtime political operative and bar certified attorney in the District of Columbia. He is Dan Lipner, Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Hey, Justin. Glad to be here. So, in case you missed it, overnight, there were some events. And by events, we mean that the U.S. announced late last night, around, 10, around 9.45, that the U.S. had, in fact, begun airstrikes in Syria against ISIS in a coalition move involving the uh, Jordanians, the Saudi Arabians, the Emiratis, the Bahrainians, and the Qatarians. A joint coalition airstrike operation was, as some people in the 
Pentagon are now calling it, quote-unquote, very successful. However, it brings up a lot of questions. First of all, let's get to the crux of this. When we look at this operation, it seems to me that this is what – what are you looking at, Dan? You're questioning no, my I'm, opening. I'm not, not questioning your opening. I'm questioning CNN showing F-14s, uh, which I believe those, are those all. are F Those are F-15s. Those are Air Force. They look like F-14s. But let's get back to the show. Right. Can we please? Thank you. <laughs> so it, this has got a very, very interesting aspect to it. Number one, Alan Morley, start with you. It's not like we didn't see this coming. In fact, some critics of the president are saying that he telegraphed the punch a little bit. Is this was the right move? Well, this is a, this is a, to a significant degree a military judgment. The more warning we give to uh, the enemy that we're going after them at some point soon, the more they're going to start taking uh, steps to conceal their movements. Um, move some of their assets around. Um, I think that by moving a little faster than perhaps uh, they thought, we probably did more damage on the ground than we otherwise might have. Uh, having said that, um, you get only one first strike. After that, the, we do damage. We probably did quite a bit of damage. We'll, the, the reports are going to have to come in over time. Um, and uh, now that the, the folks inside Syria know that we're coming into Syria, uh, notifying the Syrian government, apparently, not coordinating, but notifying, um, uh, they will now take some of those steps that uh, they were inevitably going to take. And this is going to point up this challenge, this problem of not following up the damage done in strikes with uh, with a force on the ground that can go in and uh, and and further take advantage of that opportunity. Uh, Denise Krepp, the Defense Department had come out yesterday saying that there were about 20 sites that were targeted by these airstrikes. Uh, this is obviously something that was very tactical. It was. It, it seems to be that this has been on the plate for a little while. Is there any indication to think that in the term of our initial airstrikes into Iraq versus what we're doing in Syria, that intelligence might have been enhanced, that we had a good chance of getting the leadership of ISIS in this? Absolutely. I mean, if you're going to make, if you're going to go after 20 targets, you've done an evaluation of who are you looking for, what's your probability of getting them, and then also what's your probability of hitting somebody else that you don't intend to hit. So by picking those sites, they're indicating you know, where they thought everybody was. The question will be, what are, you know, what are the next rounds going to occur and what are the next targets going to be? And then the third prong would be, have we hit anybody we didn't intend to hit and when are we going to hear about that? Well, you know, uh, Bob Hines, Chuck Hagel came out yesterday and said that the plan, quote, includes targeted actions against ISIL safe havens in Syria, including its command and control, logistics capability, and infrastructure. This is obviously going to be concerned because we now know that ISIS has been embedding itself in the general civilian population as one of its strike tactics. Is, is collateral damage here a, a huge concern that we have to look at, and there might be some retribution from that? Well, it's, uh, it's obvious that there will be some collateral damage. It's just almost, almost guaranteed. But, you know, and this is just the beginning. Now, it, 
the only way that ISIS is going to be uh, beaten down, broken up, whatever you want to call it, is boots on the ground, which is going to mean somebody's got to train some soldiers who are going to be able to fight ISA with good equipment that we can provide and good intelligence we can provide and beat them at their own game, taking over property, destroying, they got to destroy ISA and it's going to be done on the ground. It ain't going to be done by the air. But you've got the long way off because there's nobody trained now to do it. But Dan Lipner, this comes on the fact that, you know, hearing the military analysts that we see on all the talking head channels, who all are in concurrence that airstrikes just are not going to do it. But this comes after uh, several statements by President Obama saying there are going to be no boots on the ground. Is there a dichotomy shift or is there a, a, a mix up in what's strategic and what's reality? I don't think it's a, a mix between what's strategic and reality. I believe the president wants there to be no American boots on the ground. That being said, I don't think that's going to be true. Uh, I, I think we're looking at a, at a three-part series. The sequel is going to be American boots on the ground in response to whatever other disaster hits American interests. This is, this is going to be a creeping Vietnam syndrome all over again, unless somebody gets some real control over this, and unless there's a real conversation about what the hell we're doing there. Alan Moore, going off of what uh, Dan was saying, did it strike you as odd that we did not see the usual gang of suspects involved? And by that, I mean we did not see UK involvement. We didn't see French, German, even Italian involvement in this. Uh, does that strike you as odd? Well, the thing that did get my attention is that just uh, a few days ago, we were talking about the 30 and then... 40 partners, uh, Secretary John Kerry talked about them. The president made reference to this broad coalition. Um, I have no doubt that, that the French, who have already done a couple of bombing runs of their own in Iraq, are going to be are going to be part of that with actual planes. I have yet to know what, uh, what our five uh, Middle Eastern allies uh, contributed, although allowing their names to be identified is not a risk-free proposition. So they have put them put a bullseye on their own backs. I think the fact that there were just those five and, and so few of the 25, 30, 40, or whatever the number will eventually be, speaks to our desire to move quickly. It's we need some folks in the neighborhood to attach their name to this, and we need to move now before the enemy hides all of its stuff. So I think there was a sense of urgency, and then uh, we got a handful, go. And, and I want to talk about that in the second half hour when we talk about the Arab involvement, uh, but uh, Carl Tubin, you had a comment. Yeah, well, I thought we heard uh, a week or two ago Cameron had committed plane to uh, to be part of this, uh, and also I think Saudi Arabia has said that they would allow training to be done in Saudi Arabia of the fighters against uh, ISIS. Denise Krapp. This has to be a coordinated program. I mean, while we have bombs dropping from the air, we have people that are fleeing into Turkey and we have people that are fleeing into the other surrounding areas. So, uh, the UN World Food Program announced uh, a couple of days ago that it is slashing its food that it's providing by 40% to the Syrians 
because they don't have the funding. So if we're bombing and people are trying to escape and they're not being fed, we've got a catastrophe, folks, that's going to spread outside of Syria and outside of Iraq into the other areas, and that, that's going to create some problems. Bob Hines. Alan said something that needs to be understood as maybe the most significant thing that happened, and that is that we have local Arab countries, local Arab governments supporting and being a part of the coalition publicly and out there. Well, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that. That's that's going to be the next segment. I want to talk about that because that's a subject onto its own. But one of the things that struck me, Dan Lipner, is that Turkey's involvement was not as, let's say, influential or apparent as one would have thought as being one of the biggest national defense forces in the region. Does that surprise you? Well, not only not apparent, they've expressly said that U.S. that U.S. bases in Turkey may not be used for these attacks. Um, so that is a- that a shock? No, it's not a shock. The Turks have had their own problems, considering they're also in the neighborhood, and and since they're also a NATO ally, if any of this blows up and it's already starting to roll in over their borders, um, they care an awful lot. And that's one of the many reasons that we could get drawn in even more, uh, even more into into this co- conflict. Carl Tuvin. There might be a change there because at first they had uh, 40 diplomats that have been uh, uh, captured. And released. And released. Now that they're released, Turkey might be singing a different, hopefully singing a different tune. Alan Moore. Yeah, Carl is absolutely right that that uh, up until a few days ago, um, there were, I think the number was 49 hostages, most of them diplomats, and Turkey was very, very cautious and careful. They didn't want to do something that would cause uh, a mass execution of those people. They were released. The facts and details behind that release are not have not yet been made public. And once they are, we'll maybe gain, if they are, and usually these things get out, we may have some greater insight into what happened and whether that, that once that was cleared up, whether that whether that freed up Turkey. But there's another issue that won't go away for Turkey. I, I do expect them to be part of this. They're great fighters, important allies. And I think eventually they will they will they will come in. They will, they're also hosting um, uh, something over a million Syrian refugees. But they've got another problem, which is the Kurdish problem. And and they're fearful that the more we in the U.S. Uh, arm the Kurds in northern Iraq, um, that those same Kurds who move across the porous border between Iraq and Turkey may pose expanded threat inside Turkey. So they've got a they've got multiple let me, localized Let me issues. jump in on that though, Alan Moore. I want to ask you a question. Are we relying too much on the Pashtuna in Kurdistan as a ground force in response to ISIS? We're not relying on them too much. We're relying on them completely. They are the they are the <laughs> fighters on the ground. That's the Peshmerga, that's the guerrilla fighters of the Kurds. They're great fighters and they're fighting for their own land. And and they they hate the enemy. Unfortunately, the enemy for them is a little broader than our enemy. But but uh, we don't have. There's nobody else there who can carry this battle. So they are our guys on the ground in that region. Denise Krep. And Alan's right. I mean, they have a re- Turkey has a reason to be concerned about this. The Kurdish population in Turkey has always wanted its own country. It goes back to World War One. And 
trust me, one of the reasons they're fighting is, is you know, they don't want ISIL, but they also don't want Turkey. So they're going, their, their policy for their fighting is going to be dictated by what do they get at, you know, at the end of this. Do they get a homeland, and what does that homeland look like? Are we... Are we putting the Peshmerga in too much of a rock and a hard place situation? No, absolutely not. They're the only ones we can depend on. I mean, it, it, they're fighting and they're winning. I mean, there was a story over the weekend where they they said that 500 was it 500 Iraqi soldiers were killed. Okay, they were killed. The Kurds are not being killed because they are more trained and they have more equipment. That's a problem for us. Dan Lipner. They're also vested in what they're fighting for, with, with what Alan was talking about. I mean, consistently in the last 20 years that we've been dealing with the Kurds now, from Iraq War One, consistently they've shown themselves to be self-sustainable, able to govern their own region, and the suggestion, and there probably is a real opportunity for a Kurdish state there, and arguably, if this were actually engaged in a, in a real meaningful way, you could actually use that as a negotiating point between the Kurds and the Turks to actually level the issue to keep the Kurds from wanting to go after what they would consider the Kurdish territory in Turkey if you could create a, Tur- a Kurdish territory just in Iraq that is actually their own sovereign state. That being said, that. that's not the conversation. Denise Krep. But they're not going to take that. They want the property in Turkey as well, and they, you know, and we know that. They know that. Turkey knows that. The question is, what are we willing to give them in order for them to keep on fighting? Bob Hines, I want to go back to the idea that we're not seeing a lot of NATO, quote unquote, participation in this right now. Is this almost a prelude to seeing maybe NATO forces, the rapid response teams that the NATO coalition came up with a few weeks ago at their at their meetings, that we might see other boots on the ground other than American boots? That's a nice thought, but I think it's uh, a wishful thinking. Alan Moore? I I don't think that they're going to the, – that, uh, that they'll – Ground troops are not going to come from anywhere except the immediate region. Whether that's the right thing, that's the only thing for now. Now, as Dan mentioned earlier, he sees uh, further steps um, and a slippery slope, if you will, that will that will lead to the step one would be putting our guy, embedding our guys with Iraqi army, maybe with Kurdish Peshmerga in a position where they can call in airstrikes, which are some, which are a crucial adjunct to what's happening on the ground. But I think that, that for the time being, any significant number of troops is going to be Iraqi and Kurdish. And then hopefully some of these partners uh, in the region. Dan Lipner, when, when we look at how this entire operation has gone down, uh, it seems that we have found a strange bedfellow ally in the Assad regime in Syria. It, critics are now saying that you know it, the enemy that you know is better than the enemy that you don't know. Does this help Assad maintain power in Syria and almost throw his fingers out at the U.S.? Of course it helps Assad. And in the long run, as we've now seen, once you decapitate a leadership in one of these uh, strongman governments, you have failed states. So a failed Syria is another disaster. 
So, yeah, but health aside, while not great, probably less bad than an alternative. Does that, Bob Hines, or I'm sorry, Congressman Al, Bob Hines, does that take away from the credibility of the administration's foreign policy regarding Syria? Are, are we losing credibility in the Middle East because of the fact that once our big, big enemy, Assad, is now all of a sudden a strange ally? Look, you take, you take the situation on the ground the way it is. The president and his peace people have talked to Assad, said, we're not going to touch anything of yours. We're just going after the bad guys up there north and ISIS. We're not gonna, and we're not going to do anything. We're not coming after you at all. And as long as you don't send your, your, any of your planes against us, we're not going to touch you at all. Smart move. You don't need to fight two fights against different people in the same war. You got you to localize it. We're, we got to get rid of ISA first. Assad is something for the long term. Right now, it's ISA. And, and, and by the way, for the clarification, it's ISIL or ISIS. I get tired of hearing people going, are you talking about Daryl Issa, chairman of Oversight? Yes, you may. Yes, you may. Yeah. 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 A, comment, a, comment, a comment on the name. So, ISIS, Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. ISIL, Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. IS, the Islamic State. I hate them all, and so do the people in the region who say the word Islam has no business here. This 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 is a scourge against Islam. So you and so that's the first piece. Second, state. What state? They don't have a state. You know, we just because they want us to call them that doesn't mean we have to call them that. This would be, like, be like if. Hitler or Pol Pot or Idi Amin said, we want to be known as the Peace and Freedom Party. We wouldn't necessarily go along with that. We'd say that's nonsense. What? So I have a proposal. Wait, what's that? I have a proposal. And it's not the one that the, that the, that the, the Arabs French. are using and the French are using to call it the Desh, which in Arabic apparently means bigots who want to impose their views on others. And the French presidents use it because he's sort of, sort of a cross between Desh uh, bankrupt and douche. Family show. But my proposal is to call them the slimy cutthroats and unscrupulous murderers, better known as scum. Could we just call them scum? That we'll we'll take that into consideration. However, though, I, I do want to address something, though. One of the things that you have to look at is when, when they say we are a state, They've established the capital, they've established boundaries in their mind, and they are operating what many see is a very government-like operation in both their defense operation and the way that they handle, quote-unquote, public safety. You're giving them way too much credit. Yeah, they, They're a big blob on the map. And oh, the blob moves and changes. Denise Kraft. Oh, golly, nice to be a lawyer. Um, you're giving them safety. And, and you know, there are formal ways in which you recognize the state. Just because, again, as Alan said, they want to be called a state does not mean that they are a state. Have we given them statements by de facto, you know, by the words that we're using of ISIS or ISIL or, or whatever we're going to call them? Yeah, we, we have to at a certain extent, but that doesn't mean we have to continue to do so. And we don't want to do so because it legitimizes them in the eyes of others. It's a lot like uh, whether you use the word redskins or not. <clears throat> Al, 
wow, really? Really, they're one and two. Why do you kick them when they're down? Why do you kick them when they're down? Carl Tuvin. talking about partners, a big question mark in my mind is Germany. Now, Germany came forward to help the Ukraine. Does that mean that they are going to concentrate on the Ukraine and Putin and not do anything in the Middle East? It's a big question. Congressman Al. I, I think there's a, a whole bunch about this, which you don't know. Uh, we're, we're talking about various states and various players, and we won't know. There's another thing we don't know yet. We may know more by tomorrow, and that is what is the American public's response to this? What do they think about waking up in the morning and finding out that we have bombed ISIS? Uh, we have pretty well painted ISIS as the really bad guys, uh, so I suppose they could be all for this. Or maybe they could see boots on the ground coming and they'd be against it. But does anybody have any idea? Dan Lipner. Well, I, I'm going to steal David Brooks's line from this this morning that ISIS was basically a bunch of thugs and pick well-armed thugs and pickup trucks uh, traipsing around Iraq and Syria. Uh, yeah, they are really bad guys, and we've managed to scare the American public into thinking that ISIS is going to show up on American borders unless we start bombing them. Um, and lo and behold, we are now bombing and getting fully involved. And look, there's other things happening. Uh, that's that's not enough. And we need to talk about that more thoroughly. So what the American public thinks is they haven't actually been talked with or talked to and educated on the issue. One of these are bad guys that behead journalists. One of the surprising things that I, I, I saw last night in the Pentagon press releases and the discussions coming out of the Defense Department was that not only were we attacking ISIS, but there was also a targeted attack against an al-Qaeda offshoot organization that apparently had some strong chatter about a possible homeland attack here in the United States, and it was serious enough for us to strike them as well. Bob Hines, does this surprise you that we're starting to see the the, the Hydra head starting to pop up more and more the longer this draws out? Well, it certainly is, you know, that new name, what, Corsons? Scum. No, 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 no. that's Corsons. Alan's name these for ISIS. The, these are the, these are the uh, Al-Qaeda offshoot of Corson, right. Well, it seems to me, now, we've never heard of them before. At least I have. But uh, obviously, uh, the, uh, the RR operators think that we have, some, we have a bunch of people over there. This group, uh, on their own, are trying to organize a campaign against us here in the country, here in our homeland. I suspect that if that's true, uh, I think that's the reason that they, we attacked them last night. And I think if, if we can... I'd like to lo- know a little bit more about who they are, what they are, and before we know any more, we don't know any more than that. Uh, Congressman Al, uh, last night it, w- it also was released that uh, the president has given the green light to the Defense Department to continue airstrikes, fire at will basically right now, as opposed to getting clearance from Congress or briefing Congress on each individual operation. As a former congressman, is that the right call as far as Congress is concerned, or is he stepping too far out of uh, out of the reservation? If I were a member of this Congress, I'd be delighted to have uh, the Secretary of Defense come to my district, because that's where I am today, and explain this to me, and he could pick up 
nine meetings would take care of Washington State. I mean, the absurdity of trying to communicate with a whole bunch of people who aren't here is uh, is sad, and it would annoy the hell out of me if I were still in Congress. Go, oh, go ahead, Congressman Al. It wouldn't annoy me that they weren't telling me. It would annoy me that we're not there to be told anything. Well, Carl Tubin. I think I think that the American people are sufficiently uh, up on this. They've seen the beheadings. And they have, hopefully they haven't seen it, but they know about the beheadings. They know about what this group is. Unfortunately, it's Arcana, and there are going to be other groups that uh, are going to pop up, and we're going to have to take care of them. This is, this is going to be a long procedure in the Middle East. It's going to be 8 to 10 to 20 years. But Dan Lipner, we talked about this earlier. The fact that Congress is not here, knowing the fact that the president probably briefed them weeks ago, does it strike you as odd that Congress is not here at a time of national security involvement? I find it unconscionable that the Congress is not here. And the professor-in-chief could, that should know that he can call the Congress back in this joint session to actually hear and talk about sending the nation to war. Alan, well, let's yeah, let's remember that that uh, this all the, the groundwork for all of this was laid out over the last week. He announced to the to the nation in a rather academic speech, which we talked about last week. Um, it, it lacked the passion um, and the direction, but it at least covered the ground the ground rules and the, the covered the ground of saying this is what we are going to do. I would like authority from the Congress. For, and the funds to train Syrian opposition, the same people he used to refer to as a fantasy, a bunch of doctors and dentists that he was dismissive of, who are now the core of our ground force in Syria, once they're trained in Saudi Arabia. That's what he asked for. He, he said, with regard to authority, I have all the authority I need. I would love to have the Congress's blessing, but I don't need their authority. Now, that's uh, that's an interesting and debatable question, but I think that that he gave good warning to the Congress. They didn't necessarily like it, but he certainly warned them about what was going to happen, and and now we see it happen. And as far as the public is concerned, they're very fickle. They were not moved by any passion in his speech. They were moved by the beheading of causing some polls to show 70-plus percent approval of doing something like this. Okay, we're going to go to break. We're at the bottom of the hour. We're going to continue this discussion, and we're going to delve a little bit into the Arab involvement. This is Shia on Shia. This has got an interesting dynamic to it. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We will be back in 2 minutes, 45 seconds. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town, and I, I tell you, when I am back in town, or when any of my friends are back in town, or heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu. The most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars 
all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town I'll remind my friend uh, Al that 
Oh, God, I, whenever he reminds me that, yeah, that, yeah, this can't be good. That, that the Congress doesn't earn its way to having its voice heard. There's this, this pesky little thing called the Constitution, which requires congressional involvement in some things. Now, it's not clear in this case that the Constitution requires the Congress to speak. And the president clearly thinks that he has all the authority he needs. I'm not, I'm not worried about Carl's concern about people having disagreements. That's the point. We have them here and we have our disagreements. What did not happen last week after the president gave his speech and said, I'd like $500 million in order to train Syrians for fighting on the ground and training, which he got. And which training he got. them in Saudi Arabia, he received by an overwhelming vote. It was not unanimous. There were plenty of negative voices that it was too much or not enough um, and what about the bigger question of authority but there's no agreement there so I the Congress did have a chance to be heard and it had a chance to be heard on more, and they blew it on no they did not blow it they voted yes to letting this happen in, in Syria there was not a not. consensus in the Congress it, it, to, to training the Syrians in Saudi Arabia um, 500 million bucks, um, not a trivial amount of money for this particular enterprise. They knew what the president was about to do. Right. They passed on the chance to be heard more than they were. And in my judgment, that means they yeah. had their moment. Right. Denise and crap. they just waved at it. Denise crap. I, I wonder how this maneuver is going to impact John Boehner's uh, lawsuit against the president for his executive orders. Because you know the argument, um, at least that they're building for these uh, for this lawsuit, is that the president has issued too many executive orders and he's not allowing Congress to legislate. Okay, there's that argument. But now that argument has been impacted by this because you've now got a little bitty problem because Congress is now seeding the field. I mean, they're, they're not here. They're not taking action. They're sort of saying, okay, I'm going to let the president act. And, and that's something we need to be thinking about because you can't say on one hand, oh, you know, you've got an imperial president, but at the same time, you're willing to go back home to your district and say, but not today. I didn't mean he was an imperial president today. Yeah, I want to go to Congressman Al on that thought. Denise brings up some very valid points, Congressman. But it seems to me the president has the Congress right where he wants it. Out of the picture. <laughs> and, and the idea that he can call them back in, yeah, but why? They don't want to be here, and they're not here, and they're not causing the kind of chaos that this Congress has demonstrated a happy willingness to create. So I, I think the president would just uh, carry on. Alan Moore? Yeah, I just wanted to say, the reason that, that, that the House brought the suit against the president was that in their argument, he is exceeding his legal authority. It's not about him doing stuff and ignoring the Congress. It's him exceeding his legal authority. The courts will sort that out. In the case of, of, of going, going to war, which is what we're doing, we had that debate last week, but let's acknowledge it, um, in, uh, now, uh, not only in Iraq, but also in Syria, is Nobody wants to argue that he's exceeding his authority. There are those who say he is, including some Democrats as well as some Republicans. But as Al said, they don't really want to be here. It's like, okay, Mr. President. So 
it, it, it's again a legal question of whether he's exceeding his authority. He believes firmly that he has the authority, and others have a different view. Carl Tuvin. This is one part time when the president has shown real leadership, and I, I'm kind of happy that all the other people are out of town doing whatever they're doing, because I think this is this this is going to tell uh, in November. Uh, the fact of what he's doing and how he's done it, uh, I think is going to be appreciated by the American people. Dan Lipner. I actually disagree. This is this is not leadership. Leading the people who, who are, are required by law to take his orders and sending them to war, as opposed to leading a sometimes dysfunctional Congress to at least have the conversation with the people that they also represent is actual leadership and waiting for Congress to leave town. Yeah, he got the $500 million to train the Syrians. This is for, it, it, the, I, I, I want to jump in. I, I want to jump in. I'm going to do something that is going to shock everybody. And I, I want to disagree with you on one thing. Is I, I saying that the president waited till they were out on recess, I think may be a stretch. I think we had to look at the right opportunity, get in and, and analyze all the intelligence that we gathered, I'm actually going to defend the president saying, look, I have to believe that he listened to, at, at, at bare minimum, the smart discussions coming out of Secretary of Defense Chuck Hangel, the Joint Chiefs. I have to believe that that is the case. No less than, this morning, no less than, a, than Senator Kane from Virginia, a very strong Obama ally, said explicitly he did not think the president has the authority to do these things. crap. But I want to go back to your definition of leadership. I mean, our government was not established to have one sole leader. Our government was established to have a tripartite system of government where you had the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. At no point in time was one supposed to trump the other. They were supposed to do the checks and balances. That's what I'm a little concerned about your statement, that there, there's a lack of leadership. Congressman Al. And they were supposed to stay in town and do that job. Bob Hines. Yeah, I am not going to argue whether the president has or does not have the authority. It's, but I think the Congress and the president are both at fault. They didn't stay here. He didn't ask him to stay here. He didn't ask for a vote. I think when you start sending American boys and women, men and women, into battle. Boys and girls. Boys and girls. Boys and girls. Whatever it is. When you start sending Americans. I'm going to sick her on you. Well, that's okay. Hey, I'll take a chance on that. Easy. Family show. Family show, kids. But I think when you, when you send American troops into battle, you need to do everything you can as president to marshal the country to see this is something important and we're all in it together and you guys and us, we're going to work together to get it done right. Can I take that one, one step further and say that, the, that not only is it the, the men and women in uniform, but it's also the flag that they represent. And all too often this gets split in down partisan lines. That represents And any of this development you something it shouldn't be, if there are innocents that are killed from bombs that, while it, well-intentioned, directed at bad guys, kill innocents. That is you and me as well. This is a big conversation that has been taken all too casually. Absolutely. Al Alan Moore? Yeah, I, I would like to have had a more complete debate about where, where the president wanted us to go. No question about it. Having said that, 
I would warrant that even though I was discussing the action they took, as an overwhelming vote in favor of money and a plan to train people in Saudi Arabia, I would warrant that that is a, was a proxy vote. We knew what this president was going to do. He said he was going to take the battle into Syria, and he also said, I don't need authority to do that. And the Congress said, okay, we're going to give you this money you're asking for. They talked beyond that in their debate. Tim Kaine is one of those, as Dan said, who has been very much out there. and Others have been as well. You need authority to do this, in our, in our view. And others are willing to take a pass and look away. But I would say that the vote they took was more than just training Syrians, but was a proxy for this broader effort. Uh, Denise Krepp. I, I agree with Alan that, it, that it's a proxy. My question, however, is beyond the United States, but we're going to be talking about this for a couple of weeks. But where are the Russians and where are the Chinese? And I bring that up right now. Okay, we know that the Russians are sitting there in somebody's back room making a lot of chatter. Where Maybe they went home with the Congress. Well, they <laughs> A year ago, the Russians were talking about arming the Syrians with missiles to take down American planes. Take us down. And also, where are the Chinese? And I bring that up right now because I'm wondering if the Chinese are letting us do this because they have a bigger problem for themselves. And that's the Ebola problem in Africa because that directly impacts their interests. So it might actually be a question if I can say that. Let's just watch for uh, what the Chinese are doing and how it's going to impact our rules. I wonder what's Mr. Putin going to be doing while we're so busy in the Middle East. Well, that's a, that is another question. But I, there's one other aspect to this I want to talk about. Uh, I mean, we're going to obviously move the Arab discussion to the next half hour with the UN discussion. But uh, it, it, there are several critics of the Obama administration saying that this was amateur hour in many aspects. That he is, in fact, surrounded by an immature, uh, inexperienced coalition on his national security advisory team. With the exception of maybe the Joint Chiefs and the Secretary of Defense, the rest of the National Security Council just does not have the knowledge and the base to really take and give good guidance and counsel to the president. Uh, Denise Kraft, is that fair? As you know, Justin, I'm a little cynical about the National Security Council because most people think that, you know, you have a council, you have made up of staffers. They're actually temporary detailees that usually last or no longer than a year. So if you're asking me if there is a strong bench with a wealth of knowledge, nope, there isn't. Alan Moore? Well, yeah. I, I always get, I get a little uncomfortable when we start attacking staff. Um, for we're not attacking staff. For decisions that principals make, and what we're hearing, what we've heard with regard to uh, arming the Syrians, for example, in in recent days, is is Hillary Clinton in her book said, actually, I thought we should we should try arming the Syrians. That prompted the president to say, anybody who thought arming the Syrians and having that make a difference is is engaged in a fantasy. This is a bunch of doctors, pharmacists, and druggists. Now, in recent days, we've heard from Leon Panetta, who was Secretary of Defense, that he and Secretary uh, Clinton and most of the, the, uh, the heads of, of the service said, we think this is a risk we're taking. Pre Pre Former President Bill Clinton chimed in this week on that same side. Now, it's, it's interesting for a couple of reasons. Some of these 
people who are strong believers in, you know, don't kiss and tell are telling uh, some of this advice that was given. Um, but, but the reason I talk about blaming staff is instead of the principal, this president heard from very senior people um, different kinds of advice, and he chose to do what he did. Now, did he have some voices counseling that he'd do that? Probably, almost certainly. But it's not, you, you can't say he had a weak National Security Council or, or let's blame the staff. This president on this stuff, ever, ever since he got there, has been trying to disengage. Disengage, disengage, disengage at all costs. Get us out of Iraq. Get us out of Afghanistan. Set dates. Tell the enemy what our dates are. Do all of this crazy stuff that no senior people are going to advise him to do. Don't leave a residual force. Get out. Get out. And now we're in, and now it's him, and now he's the war president. Carl Tubin. You know, I've said this before. There was an Atlantic article that talked about the National Security Council and how they took people from the campaign and they took other people that used to be experts on that council who would be able to, to, to advise the president. And, and I think at this point, he did the right thing. He, he listened to his defense uh, secretary, he listened to the secretary of state, and he listened to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And that's how all this has, has come about. Denise Crump, you disagree. I agree with Carl. Come on, I've been in those rooms before. I, I've seen the national security staff at work. They are not the experts. It was amazing to sit in those rooms, and I would look at them going, oh, my goodness. Oh, my. This is not good. We Dan need a stronger staff, because I can tell you, as somebody who's had to make some decisions, you depend on your staff. And if your staff's not giving you the best advice, then how are you going to then make the decisions if they're not giving you quality insight? Dan Lipner. Well, let's also be careful when we talk about experts that, yes, without question, there are some things that are, there are night and day right and wrong. For example, when before going into Iraq the second time around, not knowing the proportions of Sunnis to Shiites and uh, that some senior folks in, at, at both the State Department and the Pentagon seem to not have known. Um, as well as there have been some rather glaring mistakes the experts have made. That being said, yeah, it is leadership and the president, and Alan's absolutely right. The president wanted to disengage and get us out of, get us out of this entanglement in the Mideast that arguably we helped create or created in whole with our invasion of Iraq the, the, the second time around. So that being the case, the, going after the National Security Council, I think, is or, or the, the staff there is, is not is not appropriate, and even if even if we had been arming folks, there's no guarantee that this wouldn't have happened in a different form. So the the idea of, of reinventing history on something I think is insane. Bob Hines, this is obviously going to be a long, drawn out new front war for a defense mechanism in our country that is already at its peak of operational capacity. Is this country ready for a long, drawn-out war against ISIS right now? I doubt it. Do I we have a choice? Yes, but we made the choice. Alan Moore, you agree? Well, <laughs> I, I don't think the public is ready for a long, drawn-out war. We, we have a long history of getting impatient way too soon uh, or early or what, whatever. We're fickle. Um, now... We're in it, and we're in it for a while. 
Are we in it for years, for decades? I don't know. I can't predict the future. I know we're in it for the for the remainder of this president's presidency. I can say that. I I, I was interested in a comment that the the founder of the former company Breakwater, the very uh, controversial group of of mostly former Blackwater. 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 Excuse me. Excuse me. Blackwater. Now uh, the for for uh, former former uh, special ops guys who were mercenaries, who were very effective, but quite controversial and uh, often brutal. And uh, they, they made some huge mistakes and they ended up having to break up the company and reconstitute it. But the, the founder said, you know, if, if Blackwater was still around, we could, we could, we could get rid of the, the, the group I now call scum in a matter of weeks. <laughs> Good luck. So uh, well, I don't know. But you need people on the ground to succeed, and we're not prepared to put numbers of people on the ground, and I don't know who is. That's the big Carl question. Tubin? Well, you know, in my mind, the, this multi-level terrorism is not going to be over in, in a year or two years or three years. It's going to go on. And the president even said that this is going to go past my presidency and into the next presidency. You're going to have terror groups, uh, unfortunately, spring up all over the place and thinking that they can do what Al-Qaeda did, Al-Qaeda did and, and what these people are doing. Denise Crap. At some point in time, our boys and girls have to come home. We've, since 2001, several of them have done five, six, seven deployments. That takes an immense, tragic toll on not only them, but their families. And if you're telling me you know, we're about to go to you know, war, or we are at war, and we're going to stay at war for another two years, what is the impact on these individuals? And we need to be talking about that because there's an emotional strain on them that we need to consider. Dan Lipner. Yeah, and Denise is absolutely right. And let, let's be clear. Going to war against a tactic, which is what terrorism is, this is nothing new. There have been terrorists on the planet for as long as organized society has been around. There have been organized bad guys, and by the way, some of those organized bad guys turn into the good guys after they win, depending on who they are, where on the planet they are. It is a tactic that's always going to be there. And we're setting ourselves up just by using the language that we're using that terrorists everywhere need to be destroyed. Great. Well, so until Eden comes back, we're pretty much going to be doing this till the end of time. It's, it's a ludicrous approach and a ludicrous argument to look at it that way, as opposed to actually trying to have engage folks and figure out how do you actually change the substance of the conversation? Well, I mean, Bob Hines, one, I've heard one, if not several pundits in this town talk about if we had not screwed up the end game in Iraq and invested more time, more effort into creating a solid based equal opportunity state instead of just throwing Maliki into the prime ministership, this would not be an issue. Is that oversimplifying the issue? Probably, but it is also true that you know we have a we have a bad habit of not finishing what we start, particularly in the Middle East. Now, that doesn't mean that I think we should we should have gotten in deeper every place around, but we just don't seem to be able to close matters off. We make mistakes constantly because we're. We're, we're too busy wanting to get out of there. Congressman Al Swift. I don't think it was a problem <clears throat> of getting out. I think it was a problem of us getting in to Iraq. Interesting thought. Dan Lipner. I mean, 
I, I hear the whispers of people saying that Vietnam have just been, we've just done a little bit more uh, at that conversation. So we could have had that wall there a little bit longer that's over there by the Lincoln Memorial. Um, no, it's, there, there's no, this is, this should not be our fight. We shouldn't be there. This is, this, this, this is not the idea that we could do something more, a little bit more money, a little bit more manpower is a fool's errand that we don't know how to choose our fights. We just get into them. That well, we certainly did that in Iraq. Yeah, but, but that brings up—I uh, mean, that, that brings up a, a, a very questionable idea, though, Bob. Is you know, we we just don't know how to get in, or we're not selective enough in the fights that we get into. Unfortunately, with the global world right now, we have we have every little piece of every conflict right now somehow poses a clear and present danger to our national security. ISIS is a huge and clear and present danger to national security. These people are animals, animals that have no problem coming out and saying our sole mission is to kill the infidel. That is their dream. If, you know, Unfortunately, selecting it, we don't select who the bad guys are. The bad guys just become bad guys. If we didn't have bad guys, we'd have global peace. <laughs> but unfortunately... This pops up and is going to continue to pop up. Dan Lipner. So should we be bombing the the militants in this country that are that claim the black helicopters are coming to get them, and they, the the tyrannical federal government needs to be destroyed? If that's really our argument that we need to go after these people that want to destroy us, then let's go to war with American well, citizens. Well, I think you're comparing apples to oranges, and I think you you're, are absolutely oversimplifying. You are absolutely you are not talking their language. You are talking about free speech. And people who say, look, I don't agree with the government versus anybody, you know, versus people sworn and have killed American citizens. McVeigh killed the, American citizens. And he's now dead. And he's you, now dead. And he was and he was he was convicted under the rule of law. Are you honestly suggesting there is nobody else that has those kind of ideas that is presently in this country. That's I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not going to say that, but what I'm saying to you is the FBI is already targeting those organizations. It's apples and oranges. Go ahead, Carl. You know, Justin, you turned into John again. Right? I have turned into John McLaughlin. I'm sorry. You know, I can, went totally John McLaughlin. We can go back to uh, Iraq, and we can take a look at Iraq and say, why did we go in there? And a lot of people today are saying, if we hadn't gone into Iraq, there would be more stability in the Middle East because uh -huh. because um, uh, Saddam Hussein would have kept his people under the thumb. But who knows? Uh, we went into Iraq because we thought there were uh, weapons of mass destruction. None were found. And there was an immediate danger to the United States. And we can get into the whole discussion about actionable intelligence another time. Uh, but with that, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about, finally, the Arab involvement, which is a whole other dynamic that we have to look at. You've got Arab countries now attacking Arab countries, which, last time we checked, not so much of a good idea. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We will be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom. 
1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. We're going to change change gears a little bit on this uh, subject for those who are just joining us. Uh, We spent the last hour talking about the breaking news overnight where U.S. 
strike fighters in cooperation with sea-based Tomahawk missiles uh, began airstrike attacks against ISIS in Syria. The coalition attack also included five Arab countries, including the Saudi Arabians, the Jordanians, the Emiratis out of the UAE, the Bahrainians, and the Qatarians. Uh, as you of right, something that sounds like all of the enemies on Star Trek. <laughs> 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 Where's Captain Kirk when we need him? And some of them live in Oklahoma. This this is why I drink. This is why I drink. I have to to moderate you clowns in a civil political discussion, and I get Star Trek out of you, Congressman? How were you ever elected? You name all those. They should. They should. You name all those countries again and see if you can do it without laughing. Can I? Can I do my live radio show, please? <laughs> you know, we're on the air. So, yeah, so much for credibility. So the reality is this is actually a very serious issue right now that we're dealing with. It it, it, it struck many people, uh, not just here in Washington, but globally, that we saw Arab countries actively participating in this airstrike. Uh, Alan Moore, when we see the list of these five nations, uh, some are allies, some uh, have a strong air uh, defense mechanism, but it's Shia on Shia. Does that strike you as odd, or does that strike you as even they realize these aren't just Shia, these are really bad people looking to do damage? Well, yeah, I, think it, I don't think we can call the scum Shia. Um, Why not? Because they're not. They're, they're, they, they, they are not Islamist in their beliefs, and that's why moderate Islam leaders have said, don't call it the Islamist state. Call it the non-Islamist state if you have to call it a state. But, but these, these are not people who are driven by religion in the, normal, in the normal sense. So I think they have showed in their barbaric and grotesque um, murderous behavior that this isn't about religion against religion. This is about people uh, who who identify with a country and with, with and with a religion against some people who, in their mind, are exactly counter to what uh, what Islam is and what civilized behavior is. So the, the only question for them is: we hate them and we'd like to destroy them, but are we sticking our uh, putting a target on our own backs, and what what risk is associated with uh, with identifying with this enterprise, um, and that's a calculation that they make. But Denise Krep, I mean, how dangerous is ISIS as a terrorist entity when we see even the Emiratis, who largely don't get involved in a lot of military operations? getting directly involved and allowing themselves to be named by the Defense Department. Okay, well, first let's go talk about their assets. What are they and where are they came from? They came from the United States. You know, it, it, for years we have been doing military deals with the Saudis, the Jordanians. Those are our planes. Those are essentially pilots that we trained in the United States. So we needed them and we knew what they would look like. Then the question is going to be, how long is their support going to continue for? Because while you have those countries helping us, they're going to help us for as long as they can, depending upon their own population. As we've talked on the show, 
their 18 to 23 year old populations in the Saudis and you know the Jordan and other areas is pretty volatile right now because a lot of those young men don't have jobs. They don't have jobs and they're pretty bored. So, I mean, what we should be focusing on is, yeah, congratulations, you helped us, I hope so, we just paid you guys to do this for many years, but how long is your support going to last for, and can you do the support and hold down your 18 to 23 population that's probably not going to be very happy with you right now because they don't use you guys as their own senior leadership with confidence? Carl Tubin? Oh, oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were, you were going to discuss. Dan Lipner... With the opening of the UN General Assembly coming up this week, this obviously is going to be a hot topic. Is is this something that we can get broader Arabic uh, authority as part of the coalition, or could we see possible resistance from others in the Arab Union, including Yemen, including Iran, including other Arab countries like that? Well, Iran's been interesting on this, and uh, for, well, Iran's not an Arab country; it's Persian. Um, Technicalities, but no, 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 but all right. But Iran's been interesting. Iran's been in favor of going against ISIS. However, also spoke out against us going into flying over Syrian territory without their permission, which apparently the Syrians have now given. So, if you want to find the actual good involved with this current conflict. Yeah, the fact that it is an Arab coalition involved that we are also leading, that is actually, if you want to go with leadership, that the president has actually shown on the international front, building an Arab coalition to go after a regional bad guy is actually a good thing. So the foreign leadership there regionally is actually a meaningful thing that we should actually take note of. Bob Hines. Well, what's particularly interesting is all the countries that are part of our team, if you will, are Sunni, and the ISIS crowd is Sunni. It's very unusual. Uh, you know, usually you see, you know, you're talking about the different uh, kinds of the different uh, Sunni versus Shia. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. And this is a different. This is a case where the leading Sunni nations are concerned about these these crazies who hold whose basic fundamental religion is Sunni rather than Shiite. It's very significant. And it's significant because they're, again, concerned about their 18 to 23-year-old population. That's going to be the key here. These countries want to knock the head off of ISIS because they don't want to radicalize their own population. And if things don't change in those countries, those young men have a strong possibility of becoming radicalized because they don't have the jobs in those countries. Bob Hines? In, In Saudi Arabia, there are literally thousands of young men, educated, uh, you know, they, they, they have an easy life, there's plenty of money laying around, but they don't have anything to do. And they're, you know, they're susceptible to, you know, people who seduce them into saying, we could go and do a really good thing, we can take care of this, we can do that, and, and we can fight this, bat- this battle and that battle. And that's exactly, as, as Denise says, that's exactly what these governments do not want to happen. Their biggest problem is they've got to find something to take care of their young men internally, and they can't find jobs for them. Carl Tubin. There's also another part of this. So the 18 to 21-year-olds or 24-year-olds, whatever, who are not working, who go into the to the armies and fly these planes or fight these battles, if, if they if they come out of it, if they come out of this victoriously, a lot of those people are going to go back to their countries and not be radicalized, 
but are going to say, maybe we need to move up. Maybe we need to have better jobs. Maybe we need to get positions in the government, and maybe there could be a, a, a an overthrow in some of those. Alan, as somebody who's dealt with international affairs extensively in your realm, is that a reality? What Carl's talking about? My mind was elsewhere. Oh, okay. Well, let me ask you. All right. <laughs> no offense, Carl. No, but I, I agree. Me next time. Denise crap. I was with Al. Oh. <laughs> I swear. Their, their minds joined hands and wandered together. I don't want to even see that mind meld. It was a mind meld. Uh, yeah, exactly. And Star Trek. Star Trek again. again. Star Trek being the theme. The Vulcan. But, Go ahead. But you know, going to come home after seeing a lot of battles and a lot of bureaucracy, then there is the possibility that they come home to their own countries and say, hey, you know, maybe we want something that's a little bit different. And I say that because that's happened here in the United States. That happened after World War One, where you had several veterans organizations that were created because they had problems, because they saw what was going on, and they wanted to make changes in the United States. It's happened in other countries, too. Put Bob Hines. I would suspect that um, when the struggles with ISA or whatever they are is over, uh, what we're talking about here is exactly going to be 20 years from now, most of these Arab countries are not going to be ruled by emirs and, and the rest of them and kings that go back one family and they control everything. It's going to be a much more democratic structure. They're going to have to do that because if they don't do it, these young people will well over But Alan Moore, we're talking we're we're talking about an organization that has in the past forty eight hours in ISIS who have come out and said there will be retaliation, there will be there will be retribution for actions taken against them, including terrorist acts. Uh does this put our allies, i.e. King Adullah of Jordan and his country, in the crosshairs of ISIS now? These guys have been in the crosshairs. Now, because there's five of them, um, they're more, it's a it's a bigger target on their back. Um, but they have, they're, they're caught clearly between a gigantic rock and this humongous hard place. They have, Jordan of all countries has over a million refugees in a country of only a few million people. They don't have water. So water, as well as this disruption along all of their borders, is a major, major challenge that creates enormous problems at home. They would love to get some kind of stability so people could return um, to their to their homelands. Um, and that whole enterprise is set back further with the up- uprising of what I like to call scum. So... So they are clearly all use. I, I, I like that. Fine. We will we will refer to ISIS now officially on the program as scum. It's important so, for as few people to understand what we're talking about as possible. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Good <laughs> Lord. Well, how about if we say scum, formerly known as ISIS? That's fine. That's right. fine. And, and, and so so they they would they are allied with us. They rely on us for this umbrella of protection that even though it is an umbrella with holes in it and uh, the, the mechanics of it don't always operate the way it might, we're the best thing they've got. And they sometimes have to stand with us, which 
they they are willing to do at this point, and who knows what kinds of assurances we're giving them about our staying power, because this has got to be uh, a point of concern for them. Are we going to be, be by their side six months in a year? Dan Lipner, when when we look at this, is is this enough to get some more less moderate? Arab nations to maybe look at America not as the infidel, but more as an important, possible, somewhat ally? Is this enough to moderate some of the extreme governments that we see in the region? Well, considering we are both the infidel and an important ally, depending on which nation we're talking about, um, the answer is no. This is, we're going to be doing this for the next 20, 30, 50 years. And just anything different is going to happen. We can't impose our own our own ideology on the region. At a certain point, people need to govern themselves. And while the the, the Bush is, is the re- is the region now in its existence a clear and present danger to our national security? As long as we are still partially dependent on their oil, yes. Bob Hines. Yeah, well, look long term. Long term, what we need to do with our friends and allies in the Middle East is help them transition from autocratic leadership in most countries to a more decentralized, if you will, and a more inclusive governmental process so that people who are now feel, you know, accept, accepting opportunities that, that, that terrorists want to join them, get them in. They say no because they see their own country is getting better. They're having a better life. They've got a better job. They have more education. That's what's going to have to happen. If it doesn't happen, it is, you know, 30 or 40 years now, the whole place will be a mess. By the way, breaking news right now coming out of Washington, CNN is reporting that the Department of Homeland Security has, in fact, issued an alert warning of possible lone attackers. We're going to get more details on that throughout the show but that is breaking news coming out of Washington that DHS now has concerns of a possible homeland attack by lone wolf targeting. Uh, Connected with scum or not? We don't know. We'll, we'll get details as we come in. But, Denise Krepp, does this surprise you that we're now getting an alert that we could see uh, a possible attack here on the homeland in imminent time? No. They threatened it. They're going to carry it out. And they want to carry it out as successfully as it's possible. Um, but I'd like to go back to what you said of does the region as it exists right now uh, present a, a threat? The answer is yes, but we can mitigate this threat, and I want to bring us back to food. You know, we're about to enter, you know, a very cold period. I mean, it's almost October, and while we've, you know, these five countries have agreed to bomb with us, they also have a lot of internal refugees. I mean, you're looking at Turkey, you're looking at Jordan, you're looking at the other countries. They're not going to be able to feed all of these folks. And when the World Health Program is saying that they're about to you know, cut the food to Syria by 40%, that's significant because the folks in Saudi Arabia and in Jordan are going to look at their leadership and say, hey, wait a second, you're spending our money to bomb, you're spending our, our money to pay for these refugees. Who is backstopping you and making sure that we are supported as well? Because we, whoever Jordan or South, you know, Saudi Arabia, don't want our tax dollars 
to be used to be paid for all of these refugees. Uh, Alan Moore, could we possibly see with the convening of the UN General Assembly this week, uh, this is obviously, again, going to be a hot topic for them, but are we going to start seeing more global support from the UN? And does this now pose a question to the UN as a whole? Is this truly a mission that UN the forces could possibly undertake in support of American and Arab regional uh, involvement? No, no. The UN does peacekeeping. Um, they don't do peacemaking. Um, and and there's a huge difference. Um, you need some level of stability. And the UN gets into conflicts all the time where they think there's something sort of stable that they're trying to maintain with with troops. This is true all over Africa and elsewhere. Um, and and they get into all kinds of problems. This will is we, not something for the U for the UN to provide forces will we, to. But the UN has a chance to speak. One of the, what we heard from Putin this week was that the, what what America did yesterday was illegal because it it did not occur with the blessing of the UN. I mean, on the one hand, it's laughable, especially coming from him. But, a veto but, authority but, in the UN. But, but he made he he did make that comment. We talked earlier about. What could we see? But, but we're we're building a coalition, not via the UN. But we're, could we see? We've got forty or so countries, supposedly. Could we see a general assembly resolution supporting the coalition in their attack on ISIS? I. I don't think yet we could. It's a coalition of it's a coalition of six countries right now. That doesn't tend to provide the kind of. of are you saying that NATO? Are you saying that NATO's not directly involved in this? No, I'm, I'm just saying that what happened yesterday um, was the U.S. with five local allies who may or may not have even provided material and airplanes. It was our navy. It was mostly our planes. They may have each tossed in a plane. They gave us their name. That's what was important. But that's not the basis for a for a UN resolution. And that the UN doesn't do that stuff very well anyway. Our coalition will be built outside the UN, not through the UN. Um, and we will see what that coalition is prepared to do. Partly as we learn more about the aftermath of what happened yesterday, there may have been some horrible civilian casualties, for example. We don't know that yet. And and, uh, and we're not going to know that until we get a damage we're assessment. Not learn that Denise Krupp. Yes, we, we could get a resolution, but I want to see the second resolution that comes with it. Because this isn't happening in a vacuum right now. This is the United States, and this is Syria, and this is Saudi Arabia, and this is a whole bunch of other countries that are talking about this issue. But there's another bigger problem in the area, and I'm going to bring this back to Ebola and Africa. That has got the Chinese worried, because that's where they're getting all of their raw material. And I'm willing to bet the Chinese will back us in Syria if we give them whatever they're going to need to make sure Ebola does not spread in Africa. Dan Lipner. Yeah, I mean, to Denise's point, it was just reported today that by the end of the year, Ebola is predicted to hit as many as 1.4 million people. This is not an inconsequential number for a really scary disease. This has the ring of the 1912 flu epidemic that encompassed the world, if not controlled properly. This is a real thing. Bob Hines, when looking at all this right now, looking at the protracted war, are we going to have to get NATO involvement in this in order for this to be a sustainable front against ISIS? 
I don't believe so. I don't Why? Believe, I don't believe we have to have them. Why not? I don't believe we have to have them because I don't think that uh, you know, we're not going to have we're not going to have a lot of troops on the ground. We're not we're not going to do that. I don't see that coming at all. I see this as being a continuing to be uh, we're going to be trying to train the, uh, the what is left of the uh, Iraqi military. That seems to be our goal. Using let them be the soldiers on the ground. I expect we'll have more uh, you know air attacks over the next few weeks. Uh, until we can't find anything else to, sh to bomb, what we should be doing. So once, once, once this, this is just going to move forward the way it is right now. I don't see this NATO necessarily coming in. I don't see they have to be in there. Well, Dan Lipner, let, let's be clear on what NATO is. It's a defensive organization, yeah. and the, the phrase that rang true is an attack on one is an attack on all. Yeah, that's it. This is an offensive move on our part, arguably a a preemptive attack. And the only person in the region that is at the moment clearly at threat is Turkey. Couldn't, and Turkey seems to be pretty content but, to stay Dan, hands off one, on this issue. Couldn't one make the argument that this was more of a defensive attack, more protecting the national interests of the United States in the region versus a strictly offensive maneuver? No. Uh, the, of all the national security experts I've seen that said that ISIL or otherwise known as scum on the show, um, is, is not an imminent threat. They could be a future threat to this country, but they're not an imminent threat by any measure. They are thugs with pickup trucks that are well-armed. Well, Carl Tuvin. You know, they've already threatened to, to do something in England. Uh, now we have this high threat here in the United States, and I think it's going to spread to France and other, other countries that are in NATO, and that's the kind of thing that will make them come in and help us, if anything. Are we going to see make that? Yeah. Are we going to see the number of Arab countries increase in the named uh, allies in this assault, uh, Alan Moore? I sure hope so. I think we. we, we Who are the ones that notable that are missing? Um. There, there's a couple of small ones. The Kuwaitis. Kuwait, um, obviously, um, although Turkey is not an Arab country, Turkey is really important here in uh, in both geography and partnership in uh, in any kind of military activity. Iran would never join, but Iran matters a whole lot. Um, they have been critical of the move, saying it's illegal. Again, I love these. Uh, <laughs> These international lawbreakers who like to call us out for doing things that are illegal, um, selective enforcement of the law, I guess we're all potentially guilty from that, of that from time to time. Um, the, 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 the bigger players in the region, whether they join or not, their behavior is critically important. And then we really do need the, the folks on the outside. Um, we, we need the Europeans. We need the some other folks with some money uh, to uh, uh, to kick in, and it'll be interesting to watch uh, to watch Russia. Uh, they do have interests uh, here, and no, there's no one who likes uh, this uh, this particular terrorist organization. Denny's crap. The Japanese are going to anti up cash. The Germans are going to anti up cash. But I'm going to take a slight disagreement with Alan. I. I think the Iranians are going to play a very interesting role in this. Um, 
they're changing. Again, they've got that population, the majority of which is under the age of 40, the majority of which does not remember the takeover of the U.S. embassy, and the majority of which really likes their iPhone. Um, I think it's worth watching. Well, of course it's worth watching. I just don't see them joining the coalition. That was what I said. They're critically important. Let me ask this question to, to Alan and Denise. Alan, do you think that the U.S. might take a bold step and recruit them to be part of it, or would they even take an even bolder move to volunteer to be a part of this coalition? I don't see either one of those things happening overtly, but I see a level of cooperation possibly evolving because, as Denise accurately points out, <laughs> they have huge stakes in this. Iran does. Um, they don't want to be isolated, um, but I mean, they're tired of being part of the axis of evil. The Ayatollah has 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 called out America for acting illegally and so on. I mean, there's too much too much bigger issues between us and Iran. If we could solve the nuclear issue, which I'm not predicting will happen uh, in the in the near future, although some people continue to be hopeful on that, if we could solve that, we could open a lot of doors with Iran. Denise Krapp? Yes, and yes. You think so? Yeah, and I bet they do. Dan, let me know why. No, Denise is absolutely right. I mean, over the last three and a half years, there's been more than a handful of conversations, even though they've been back-channel conversations, with the Iranians, and that's just what we know about. And they've spoken up pretty clearly of wanting to interact with this and wanting an international coalition. Carl, they've been clear on that. Carl Tubin. It just came over on CNN that the United States told Iran that we were going to have these strikes. So there are, we you know now that there are, there are those conversations going on, and now there's this situation here where we're telling Iran what we're going to do. And there's also breaking news coming out of the Middle East right now through the Defense Department. Apparently CNN is reporting the Defense Department has announced that the Al-Nursa Front, the leader of that organization, an Al-Qaeda offshoot, was killed in one of the airstrikes in Syria. That's going to be big news. That's going to be real big news coming up. We'll get more details on that if we can before the end of the show. Uh, with that, uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we've got to talk a little bit of domestic politics. Uh, Lois Lerner is back. For those of you who don't remember Lois Lerner, she's the infamous IRS official who lost emails regarding targeting GOP fronts and organizations. We'll talk about Lois and her exclusive interview and how broke she is. When we come back, this is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, 
scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Highland Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, we're going to talk a little domestic politics because we have a few minutes here at the end of the show to talk about Lois Lerner. For those of you who don't remember Lois Lerner, Lois Lerner was the IRS executive who mysteriously lost email and testified before Congress using the following uh, under my Fifth Amendment right, I choose to invoke my blah, blah, blah. Paraphrase. Whatever. She didn't even know that. So anyway, so the reality is Lois Lerner decided that she should give an exclusive interview to Politico, in which case 
she went over five topics. So I thought, you know what? Let's take a second because we need some, you know, brevity here. Let's look at the five topics she brought up. One, she didn't know much about taxes before she started working at the IRS. <laughs> so here's a theory. Congressman now. Yes. You're a congressman. Yes. A senior executive from the Internal Revenue Service, the agency that taxes Americans, is testifying in front of you, and she's saying that as a senior executive with this taxing organization, she didn't know much about taxes before working for the IRS. Does that give you a little bit of pause in saying, I don't know, what the hell? I would have deferred to one of my Republican friends to take that. Helen <laughs> <laughs> Moore, does it surprise you that somebody like Lois Lerner could, in fact, get to a senior executive position without knowing a lot about taxes, let alone being a senior executive in the tax agency? Okay, so everybody at the IRS doesn't exclusively deal with the same part of the tax law. The tax law is... is Thousands and thousands of pages, not words, pages. So you have people who develop very narrow expertise. She came, she was a lawyer at the at the Federal Elections Commission for some years and, and apparently was reasonably well thought of. So she knew a lot about a, so certain, a certain kind of law. Um, she got this job at the, at the IRS, which was not the job that she was uh, uh, serving at the end. She started at sort of a mid-level position and built out her knowledge. This happens all the time. You don't, all, you, don't, you don't show up on day one and know everything, and then if you get promoted, you move into different parts of the law. So it doesn't, it doesn't trouble me. She was inartful the way she talked about it. See, he's the Republican. I would. Have That's why you should have deferred to him. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Uh, but Bob Hines, she, her predecessor to that job, said that it was her lack of knowledge about taxes that, in fact, was the catalyst for the reason why she targeted Tea Party uh, organizations. Um, does that seem like crap to you? Yes. It does? Yes. Fantastic. Yes. Good. Good I, short answer. I like I, those today. I, you know, it's obvious to me that uh, she decided she was going to go after him. I mean, she did. They make bad decisions, according to her predecessor, referring to Lois Lerner. Well, Carl Dubin? Let it be known that at the same time that they went after Tea uh, Party people, they were also going after veteran service organizations and other organizations uh, with uh, fine-tooth comb. Which, obviously disturbs you a little bit because yeah. I mean you guys are dependent on right. those donations. Right. Those aren't yeah, I hear you. Hey, the other thing she disco we discovered in the article is her pension. When asked how are you doing, she said, I'm doing just fine on a hundred thousand dollar a year pension that she gets mm -hmm. from the US government, which is by the way, substantially higher than the median income of just about every American in the country. <laughs> Denise crap. All right, but here I know deliberately uh, defer to Alan. There are some very generous pension uh, plans for government retirees. And as somebody who came into the government um, in the mid-90s, I always heard about this magical plan that was created. But you had to have joined the government before, I think, the mid-80s. Alan, do you know which one I'm talking about? I think it was 82. 82 first, the old FERS program. Yes, yeah, so Alan, can you the, talk the old about CSRS. The and she probably, because it sounds like she spent most of her career as a federal government employee, and it sounds like she started 
before 1982, and she, so she, she was eligible under the old system, and at the end of her career, she was getting paid at a very high level. So you have a generous program built on the, the, the number of years you serve and the average of your highest three years of, uh, of salary. So you apply the formula and you come up with a number. And it sounds like her number was in, in the $100,000 range. But that's, that's, Congressman that's Al? a big chicken feed compared to the, uh, the, uh, the, the current salary of her husband, who is a senior partner in a major law DC firm. law firm. I, so they, they have quite a bit of uh, f uh, family income. I, I want you to know that that is considerably more than my pension. <laughs> and you were a congressman. I was a congressman. For how many years, Al? And 16. 16 years. Right, and she and probably so, had 35 well, years in. Whatever. I'm going to pass uh, the hat. Wow. This program is ever off the air. I'm passing the hat. Because oh, I'm actually <laughs> struggling under my pension. Dan Littner, before we get too high and muddy about discussing people's pensions, let's keep in mind most Americans don't even know what that word means anymore. It's not even on the table for most Americans. And by the way, the U.S. median income is $51,000 a year. She's making double that. Also hey, true. Uh, so here's, here's, the, here's the, the crux of this is – in in the political art in the political argue, article, she said that she absolutely did not destroy the emails. She didn't delete her emails. However, much of according to Politico, much of Lerner's professional correspondence is unavailable after a conveniently timed computer crash wiped out more than two years worth of her emails. Lerner promised that she did not orchestrate the crash herself. Quote. How would I know two years ahead of time that it would be important for me to destroy emails? And if I did know that, why wouldn't I have destroyed the other ones they kept releasing? Unquote. Lerner further said, referencing the handful of emails that have been uh, the object of public scrutiny. Denise Kraft? I don't understand this crash because I can tell you every federal agency that I've ever worked for, if a crash occurs, it's fine because what happens is they usually back up those tapes days at a time. You mean so, they have data centers where all this oh stuff is kept? Goodness, the IRS ever. has a data center? Yes, yes, Justin, they do. So if a crash occurred on Wednesday, that's fine because they would have backed it up on Tuesday and they would have backed it up on Monday. So again, for me, that has always been the most puzzling claim in this case because that information should have been kept or should have been restored. Uh, help desk Dan Lipner. Go so, ahead. Oddly enough, I actually have been a sysadmin uh, 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 before. So Are you serious? Yeah, I have. Uh, what haven't you done, dude? <laughs> I'm, I, I've done many different things. So that being said, um, Lois Lerner, in order for the conspiracy theory to be true that, that the Republicans have been putting forward, not only will she have had to destroy the emails on her own personal computer, but gotten to the techies on the back end to make sure everything at the data centers have also been destroyed. The alternative argument that there actually may have been a little bit of incompetence involved here, that not only was there the systematic crashes that occurred on, on multiple different older computers within the IRS, but the backup systems also weren't functioning correctly. This is seeming far more likely than she was the, the kingpin of this giant conspiracy. See, I, I'm, I'm going to disagree with you because I can tell you that, yes, my computer crashed several times in the federal government, and each time it crashed, I screamed bloody murder and demanded that I get it back. And it was amazing and how much I screamed, that I could get those emails back. So I, I, I'm just 
to me, it, it's just it's strange that you're telling me that you've lost two years and you can't yes. find yes. them. Maybe that this, doesn't make any sense. Conspiracy. Maybe this conspiracy, I think. the famous 18 minutes. Uh, <laughs> 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 they didn't have data centers back then. Yeah, Rosemary Woods. Yeah, they didn't have data yeah, centers. 60 Minutes just reported this a couple weeks ago that our nuclear missiles are still governed by machines that use five and a quarter floppy disks. <laughs> so let's not pretend that the, the entire federal government is at the cutting edge of technology. Justin, green yeah. machine? Green machine? Okay, no, I got gotcha. you. No, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. And, oh, by the way, uh, one of the other things is she won't hide. Uh, she is, according to Politico, she's defiant, saying that she's, quote, not going to let critics ruin my life meaning uh, Lerner and her husband refuse to move from their home. And when Lerner leaves the house, she doesn't try to hide by wearing sunglasses and a headscarf. Somebody told me I should get a blonde wig. Oh, oh God, I don't even want to think about that. But, but here's, didn't do that. Here, here's the crux of this, though. The one thing that came out in a serious note was she won't apologize or admit she did anything wrong, which is a big question that a lot of people are still asking this down. She said, quote, regardless of whatever else happens, I know I did the best I could under the circumstances and am not sorry for anything I did. While her emails clearly denigrate conservative groups, and she's a registered Democrat, Lerner claimed that she never allowed politics to play a role in her professional decisions, saying, quote, my personal opinions have never affected my work. Um, that is... Do, does America, or at least Congress, or those organizations that were targeted as part of this, do they deserve an apology? Congressman Allen? Does, does Congress deserve an apology? Yeah, she lied to Congress. Well, this, no, 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 it was this, never proven. This, this Congress deserves an apology. All right, let me rephrase this. She, she, <laughs> she never lied to the Congress. She, she never told she them anything. She didn't answer anything she, to the Congress. Yeah, so the Constitution gives her the right to this. Absolutely, absolutely. I you know, this, this issue... It's fine. It, we, it got its 15 minutes. Um, I don't. Th I think most most people have, have moved on. There's a there's a level of discomfort in the country about some of these so-called tax exempt groups. Let's remember, you, when you're when you're tax exempt um, and involved in political activity, you're you you are not allowed to deduct your contributions to the organization. That's what a 501c3. That's what right. charities do. That's not what's happening here. Unless, right. unless, unless, and I've had to deal with this, unless you're actually filing with the FEC and sharing your contributor data. There are actual rules that That is not deductible if you give money to a PAC like Tom Steyer does, and we could read about today the $15 million check he wrote. That's no, 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 that's not, reported. Not, not, not tax that's deductible reported, for the donor. But it's not tax deductible. And the money is all spent. They don't make a profit. They spend it all. Right. Dan, so, Dan, we're, hold on. Dan, let me We're comparing apples and oranges here. No, no, well, no you, but Alan, you are correct. If you are donating. <laughs> Okay, defense rests, but but, but let's let's be clear there. The, the donations being tax deductible by the giver, yeah, that you could is only tax deductible for an actual nonprofit, which is correct. But we're also talking about tax exempt organizations, yep. and that part of the tax code slash FEC rules demands that you file with the FEC. There are ways around this, and, so, and some of the organizations that have been mentioned, and mind you, there are left lefty and righty organizations that got hit on on the same issue. If they're taking in partisan 
activity, the donors are not allowed to write that off their taxes. And that's really the core of the issue that people are fighting about. The grass right, is but, getting very tall here. But, okay. She had this interview on advice and counsel, and I'd be willing to bet she did so because she is negotiating right now with her former boss to see who is paying her legal fees. Uh, That's why she is doing this, because if she has incurred hundreds of thousands of dollars in defense of what she did, she is negotiating with her former employer to see whether or not they will pick it up. If they pick it up, my guess is she stops talking. If they don't pick it up, she keeps talking until they are willing to pick up the legal fees. Wow. Good That's call. Good call. On. Well, we need some bourbon today. And, oh, by the way. Uh, Lois Horner can't find a job in the private sector. And that's why she's doing it. Oh, really? Shocking. Shocking. She's a quote-unquote radioactive. Okay. That being the last on that, now comes to the favorite part of the show. It's Tell Me a Story, where we talk about the latest news, innuendo, under two minutes for everything happening inside the Beltway, outside the Beltway, and stuff we didn't cover on the show. Congressman Al, tell me a one. story. I've got one. I've got Yay, one. Congressman Yay. Al. Quick, before you go. Yes. Go. I wrote it down. Good. Quickly. Cheater, we've been talking about foreign policy entirely, but at some point, this government's going to have to start dealing with entitlement programs and what they do to the budget and how they can help get uh, the spending down. Okay? The Democrats have been very, very quiet all during the time that the Republicans have had to be putting up with the, with the Tea Party and all of that nonsense. And Nancy Pelosi, I gather, has been able to keep a, a close muzzle on, uh, on it because the Democrats have got their people that are kind of far to the edge. It's just the other edge. Uh, so at some point, we're going to have to deal with entitlements. And when we do, that's when you're going to see the Democrats be really troublesome and really difficult. Interesting. Good call. Bob Hines, tell me a story. Uh, there is a, uh, you know, as we get closer to elections, and I'm talking about the presidential election, you know, boomlets start on different candidates. But now I have discovered that it seems that the governor of Indiana, a former congressman, Mike Pence, who has done a good job in Indiana, who's a relatively conservative but sensible person, he and he's a Midwestern guy, and it looks like he is uh, floating his, at least some people are floating his, his name <laughs> as a possible 2016 a possible candidate. 2016 candidate, and uh, is with, with, with a number of the people who have already been named aren't nearly as good as he is. Wow, He's interesting. Carl Tubin, tell me a story. There was a, is it in this decade? Yes. Good. There we go. We're getting better. <laughs> Last week, there was a story, either in the New York Times or the Washington Post, about a rumor that uh, uh, came out of uh, somebody in the new government of Iraq that... Um, this whole ISIS thing is a is a plot by the CIA and ISIS. Now that was one of the most preposterous things I've I've seen in a long time, and 
somebody they, they don't forget Israel. They included Israel in that. They questioned they they questioned this guy, and he wouldn't he refused to tell where the source was from. But some other people said the source might have been Iran. Ah, interesting. Uh, Denise Krebs, tell me a story. Jim Webb, the former senator and former secretary of the Navy, took his first step today in his run to be president. <laughs> fascinating, fascinating uh, speech he gave at the National Press Club. Uh, he had a lot of folks there, and yes, I went up to him afterwards and said, if you are running, I'd love to be part of your team. What party? <laughs> you know, you know, there's a governor in uh, Maryland called Martin O'Malley. He's a Democrat, too. Yeah, I yeah, know. You know that. that. You know running. that. Yeah, and he's running. Yeah, and he probably is. Uh, Alan Moore, tell me a story. Yeah, the uh, the Secret Service took another big hit. We don't talk about Fight week. Club. Um, they. Uh, <laughs> we don't talk about Fight Club. They. They. Uh, <laughs> So, and for those of you who've never seen Justin, he looks just like Brad Pitt. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, he's older. Uh, he's actually, I don't know if he's older. Pitt's 50. Um, How old are you? Out. Well, no, we're not talking, we're not about, talking about him. We're talking about Finish your story. He said Justin. He didn't say me. Um, I'm older, better looking than Pitt, but older. Finish your story. So... So we all know about the breach, uh, a disturbed uh, Iraq veteran, climbed the fence, went uh, 60 yards, got in the front door. Didn't get in front um, door. Didn't, he, got, he was stopped at the front door. He got inside the front door. Yeah. It was unlocked, and he was stopped right there. They didn't call out the dogs. They didn't shoot him. The Secret Service, in its, in its somehow uh, odd ability to try to – to, uh, to make a lemonade out of a lemon, said, we, our guys showed great restraint. It did not look like he was armed as he was running across the lawn. How they would know that, who knows? The president had left the building literally less than 10 minutes earlier. Very strange, very embarrassing. Let, let us hope that in responding to this, we don't create more distance and more barriers between here, here. the public here, here. and the White House. If we have to take the seven-foot fence up to 12 feet or 15 feet, great. Let's do that. Um, but let's not push the people farther back. It is such a special thing and so unique to America that uh, they, it, compared to most countries that, that people from around the world, not just Americans, can get that close to the White House, look at it, sense it, know that much of the time our president and his family are in there. Um, security, critically important, and the, uh, the, the Secret Service gets a black eye over, over this one, but let's hope we don't res- over-respond and uh, and put greater distance we, between we don't our talk, ears. We don't, talk, we don't talk about Fight Club. Actually, anyway, go ahead, Dan Lipner. Actually, I just want to piggyback before I do my... Uh, no, 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 no. You get one story. What's your story, Dan Lipner? Fine. Uh, while, while we are all nursing our drinks from uh, from the beginning to the end of the show, I'd also like to acknowledge and, and let everyone out there know that uh, since I've been here on the show, we've had about a dozen people here watching. And that's the story simply put, hey, let's have some more folks come here and watch us live. Okay, yeah, I like that idea. Anytime. Okay, 
I hate to end on a on a downer note, but I need. No, I need okay, then. Okay, then I all right. Then I won't. Then I won't. Uh, then you know what? I don't have a I don't have a story then. Uh, then that being the case, I will take this opportunity on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, who apparently is very handsome, Bob Hines, who's apparently very distinguished, Carl Tuvin, who's apparently Carl Tuvin, Denise Krep who's our only female with the extra chromosome in the group, a very distinguished, handsome, and sensible, factual fellow, Alan Moore, and Dan Lipner. Uh, I am your moderator. I'm still getting you back. I'm getting you back for the black helicopters comment, dude. Uh, I am your moderator. I'm your moderator, the very Brad Pitt-favoring, handsome Justin Russell. We will be back next week. Here, live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? The place to be. That's absolutely right. You can follow us on our website at www.backroompolitics.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Backroom Politics. Or you can email your questions, concerns, or just telling me how handsome I am at Justin at BackroomPolitics.org. We will see you here live next Tuesday. Have a great week, America. Bye-bye.
Thank you.